0: You know, it all started that would have been summer of 2020. And they asked, what would be the first things we would do if we had capital, you know, to really further improve Sundance? And our answers were snowmaking, new lifts, and adding some additional parking. And it was like immediate alignment because that's exactly the conclusion that they had come to as well. So once the deal was done and announced, literally within like the first nine months, we got all of those projects done.
1: Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, back out west today to one of the fastest changing ski areas in Powdertown. First, I have one favor to ask. Please click over to StormSkiing.com and sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter. The podcast is just a small part of the storm and this whole operation revolves around the email newsletter which will deliver at least 100 articles exploring the world of lift served skiing every single year. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. I am doing actual ski journalism at stormskiing.com. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm ski Journal. Okay, let's talk about a service that I use every single day of the winter, open snow. I live within a five hour drive of approximately 150 ski areas. That means I have a lot of options. So when I plan my ski days, I want to know what's firing and I want to know in advance. Can I get away with a two hour run to the Catskills or the Poconos? Is Berkshire East the spot today or is it gore? Or do I have to haul my butt out of bed at 4 a.m. to catch turns in Northern Vermont or Western New York? It's more than I could sort through myself, frankly. That's why I use OpenSnow. Outlooks from multiple weather forecasting models, updated hourly, resort by resort snow outlooks, and one of my favorite features, frequent email updates focused on the region of your choice. For me, I rock the Mid-Atlantic, New England, and all US emails, but you can choose from more than two dozen daily snows focused on regions as varied as British Columbia, Colorado, Southern California, or Idaho, or on specific mega resorts such as Jackson Hole or Mammoth. OpenSnow is now a storm partner, but I have used OpenSnow for years, and now you can too. Test drive OpenSnow's best features with a free 60-day trial, including 10-day snow forecasts for your favorite ski resorts, high-resolution weather maps, expert analysis, and much more by visiting opensnow.com backslash storm That's opensnow.com backslash storm Okay, now for my OG sponsor, Mountain Gazette. No matter how hard I hammer you with this, it is not going to whack you on the head as hard as Mountain Gazette when this work of art drops on your doorstep. Issue 198 worked its way to me last week, and holy bleeping cow. First, the cover. Seth Morrison, crushing pow, as captured by Scott Markowitz. That shot tags an enormous spread on one of the greatest skiers of all time. And then, did you know there are 22 ski areas in Greece? Greece. There are some amazing picks to prove it too. Writer and snowboarder Dave Zook then gives us a deep meditation on what it means to compete in and retire from the competitive free ride circus. And the photo profile of Trevor Kinnison, who's living an inspirational life in a sit-ski after a spinal cord injury, is absolutely unforgettable. This thing takes some left turns too. We explore nudist lifestyle, Saudi Arabia, and the tragic end to cyclist Mariah Wilson's life but I can only say so much. My man, Mike Rogie, who had the vision to bring Mountain Gazette back from the dead two years ago, laid this out pretty bluntly in the latest issue. When he said, quote, a firm belief developed for me recently. Folks need to see Mountain Gazette in real life. Then, and only then, do they get it. Look, that's real. This thing is incredible. It is the best outdoor print mag going And you can only get it by subscribing at mountaingazette.com. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 105, Chad Lionbaugh, President and General Manager of Sundance, Utah. Sundance is making moves. You might have this notion in your head of sleepy old Sundance, that smaller ski area parked down the road from the mighty Cottonwoods and Park City but if you haven't been in a couple years, you will not recognize the joint. Last year, Sundance ripped that creaky old raised lift off the mountain and replaced it with two lifts, one of which is the mountain's first high-speed quad. This year, they're adding a terrain expansion and a new fixed grip quad called Wildwood. The resort also replaced the old Arrowhead lift with the Reds quad in 2016 and added a new frontside lift a decade ago. That means the only lift left on Sundance that's more than 10 years old is Flathead, and that one is on its way out too, as you will find out today. But lifts are just the beginning. Sundance, under new ownership, has ramped up snowmaking, expanded night skiing, and added parking, and there is a whole lot more ahead. Sundance skiers, you are going to love what you hear today. So, let's do it. My guest today has been President and General Manager of Sundance, Utah since 2006. Sundance offers more than 500 acres of skiing, served by nine lifts, on a 2,150-foot vertical drop. The ski area averages 300 inches of snow per season. Chad Linebaugh is my guest. Chad, I'm fired up to talk Sundance today. Welcome to the storm. How are you doing out in Utah? Stuart, it's great to be
0: on with you. Um, I mean, what a great time of the year, right? We're just a (laughs) a few weeks away from the season starting, so I can't think of a more appropriate time to jump on with you and talk about skiing, because I think this time of the year, everybody's ready to go, right? And the storms have started lining
1: up, so we're feeling pretty good. Oh, I'm ready to go, Chad. And I'll tell you what, I'm on the East Coast. It is 75 degrees today. (laughs) I was sitting on my patio in my t-shirt a couple hours ago. So I'm watching the snow pile up out west with great envy. How How has that storm cycle been hitting Sundance so far?
0: It's been really good. I mean, to get what we've received this early in November, you know, last week we had about nine inches and this week is shaping up. It could be, you know, a foot or two when it's all said and done with this next storm cycle. So, we're really pleased. Um, of course, as you know, we're we're building a lift right now. We're finishing that lift, so uh, <laughs> we got to get a couple projects done. But uh, no,
1: we're very very happy with the way Mother Nature is treating us so far. I definitely want to get into that lift, and we'll we'll talk yeah. about that extensively in a bit. Your snowmaking system, we'll we'll also talk about that a lot today. And I know you've been working on that for over the past several years. Are you making snow already?
0: Yes, we started. I think the first night we blew snow was last thursday night um and uh we we blew it primarily in our in our new beginner area you know kind of Mm -hmm. starting at the bottom of the mountain there and uh,
1: yeah the production looked pretty good it was very encouraging so are you at the point where you're blowing every chance that you get right now or are you being strategic about when you turn those things on we
0: are blowing every chance we can get when the temps and all the conditions line up our team is fully engaged and we're making snow whenever we can
1: Love that. Has anyone had a chance to sneak up and get some turns in yet? You have enough snow on the mountain to do that?
0: No, no. Well, not, you know, there probably was enough last week if somebody, you know, got really adventurous. I certainly haven't. I'm not aware that any of our team has. I think everyone's so busy with work right now. Mm -hmm. Um, We have not made any
1: turns yet. What's the target opening day, Chad? December 9th. Nice. All right. Well, let's get into your tenure at Sundance here. So as I mentioned in the intro, you've been at the mountain for 16 years. That's a really impressive run. Was the general manager president position your first job at the resort or did you start and work your way up? Yeah,
0: I actually started as a breakfast waiter in 1994. So I've actually now been here at Sundance for 28 years. Amazing. You know, yeah, I was going to college and like most college students wanted to, you know, waiting tables was the best money. I thought, hey, if I'm going to wait tables, why not do it at Sundance where I get a free season ski pass? <laughs> and uh, it was kind of hard to get that first job as a waiter here. Those were very coveted jobs. And I won't go into the details on that, but I was fortunate to start as a breakfast waiter, work my way up. And then, you know, about the time I graduated college in business, I, I switched over and, and got into sales and marketing here at Sundance and eventually became the director of sales and marketing and really enjoyed you know that that world like that naturally is kind of who i am is more of a sales and marketing person and then you know it's it's kind of a long story how it transitioned into uh president and general manager but as you said that occurred in 2006 and it, it well it's kind of funny it actually started as an interim role and the mm-hmm. interim lasted about 2 years and then it was like, all right, I think this is now a permanent role. <laughs> now, now it's been 16 years, and you know, just an an amazing, amazing journey. Like I couldn't have scripted it better. Like I've just absolutely loved, you know, my my time and experience here, and, and what it's taught me. It's just, it's just really amazing.
1: So, did you grow up in the area, Chad? Did you grow up skiing?
0: Yeah, it's kind of a fun story. I, yeah, I grew up about 30 minutes from here at Sundance, a little town called Pleasant Grove. And, you know, my my parents didn't ski. Um, My older brother had learned to ski just through a buddy. And so it was my older brother and cousin who first brought me here. I mean, I was probably in like fourth grade. So this would have been probably, you know, 1978, 1979. And -hmm. the very first day I skied was right here at Sundance. And as most big brothers would do, you know, he took me right to the most aggressive run, back mountain, black diamond, and basically said, (laughs) go. (laughs) I I remember I actually remember like falling down and sitting there crying as I watched other people skiing by me and you know so I had kind of a horrible introduction to skiing it was not like you know bunny hill here's an instructor it was my older brother just saying go uh fortunately (laughs) it still gave me the bug and I just stuck with it and just loved it and so from that point on I was I was a a Utah skier and I just love skiing a lot of the resorts here in Utah of course Sundance for, for a variety of reasons was always considered
1: my home mountain, but I love skiing all the resorts here in Utah. So take us back here, Chad, that's really interesting. And Sundance has a really terrific, rich history, which we'll get into. Just take us back here for a moment. And I realize you were a little kid, but what do you remember about Sundance in the 1970s and 1980s? What was that scary like back then? I'm really glad you brought that up because, um, not just me,
0: but Jamie Redford, who is Robert Redford's mm-hmm. son, mm-hmm. said this to me one time. He considers the 1970s as the golden era of Sundance. Um, okay. You know, because Sundance started in '69, and so those first you know 10, 11 years were very instrumental, very raw, rugged, kind of the Wild West. Not a lot of structure. A lot of people from Hollywood, you know, connected to Robert Redford, were coming here. You know, so to your question, how did I view it? You know, here I am, this little kid, you know, how old was I? I don't know, eight, nine years old, skiing up here at Sundance. And I literally remember seeing Robert Redford and I was like, wow, like that's, that's a movie star. That's an actor. And then I would see other actors. I mean, like if you remember the TV show mash, I remember Mm -hmm. seeing the guy that played radar on mash. If you remember that show, I saw him here. I saw, I saw, I saw different TV stars as a young kid here. And I'm like, this place is, there's something special here. You know, it was you could just kind of feel this energy of this kind of down home local mountain, but kind of infused with this Hollywood flair. Um, and, and just kind of like some really interesting people coming here. It
1: was, it was a lot of fun. So Sundance so is really interesting and and you really brought up a, a unique dimension of the place. So you survey Utah and some of the best ski resorts on the continent. You have Alton Snowbird, you have Park City, you have Deer Valley, Brighton and Solitude, Snow Basin, just these really iconic, legendary places. And you have to make a name for yourself, right? And you have to, you have to figure out what you are and, and, and what you are to customers. And Sundance has obviously something very special to offer. I think it's not always as obvious looking from the outside because Utah is so dominated by these huge players on these big passes. Just speaking as someone who has skied there for your entire ski life, has worked there since the nineties. What is so special about Sundance, Chad, what has kept you there all these years when you have skiing there and working there when you have, when you live within this Mecca of ski areas in North America?
0: Yeah. Let me, let me start with a quote that I heard Robert Redford, you know, he was my boss for 15 years. I had the pleasure of working very closely with him. And one of the things he would often say is that Sundance is not just a place But it's a feeling. And I really think that's true that people feel different when they're here. And I think a lot of that stems to, first of all, the natural beauty. I mean, I think many people will say, and as you mentioned, there's so many great ski resorts here in Utah. And I could go through, we could do a whole podcast on my point of view of what each (laughs) ski resort has as as its benefit, right? That'd be Mm -hmm. fun, but that's not what we're doing today. But if I was gonna say, what is the benefit of Sundance? It is certainly our natural setting. I mean, we're backed up against Mount Timpanogos, which stands nearly 12,000 feet in elevation. So we have this dramatic backdrop of a mountain that looks so majestic, very similar to what you experience, you know, throughout Europe. Um, it's just it's just a stunning natural setting. And then on top of that, you know, thanks to Robert Redford and his commitment to minimal development over the years, Sundance has stayed more about nature, less about buildings and development. Now, certainly we've developed over the years, but we've done it in a very, very thoughtful way. So, you know, you show up here and as opposed to seeing large buildings, you see nature, you see Mount Timpanogos, um, you see very well-designed buildings that fit into the landscape. So all of that leads up to, you know, that quote of Sundance is not just a place, but it's a feeling. I think people feel different when they ski here. It's just, it's just a very unique
1: setting. I know you told us that it was a long story about how you became president and general manager. Can you give us the short version? Sure. Yeah, the short version is,
0: um, I guess I can now say this, but way back then, you know, 2005, 2006, the Redford family was actually considering a joint venture partner at that time. And the GM who had been here, he moved on and they needed somebody to kind of bridge the gap until they figured out if they're going to bring on a joint venture partner or not. And, you know, I, I'd had the good fortune of meeting the Redfords at that time. I was the director of sales and marketing. So they really said, Hey, Chad, will you step in and be our interim general manager? And, uh, to be honest, I was a little bit reluctant because, you know, managing people, managing a ski resort, keeping in mind, I was more from the sales and marketing background. It was a little bit intimidating and I wasn't sure if that's the direction I wanted to go, but out of love for this place and a commitment to the Redfords, I said, yeah, I'd be happy to. And then, like I said, you know, interim. I thought interim would be a couple of months. That turned into three years, <laughs> and then by that time, um, the idea of a joint venture partner, all that fell apart. And the Redfords really decided to continue on the journey as the sole owners. And that really interested me as well. And we and we put together a really fun plan of some capital improvements to really further enhance our experience and our business model. And, and that really excited me. And so it was kind of this new journey that we went down and, uh, and I really just, you know, developed into the position, loved it. And I love our team here. And I think the chance just to work with these amazing people alongside of them and, and just help this place be what it is, is it was very exciting to me. And, and now it's hard to imagine looking back that that's been 16 years and, you know, in this role and, and, and now we're on a whole new journey as I'm sure we'll get to here in a moment.
1: So it sounded like you had the op side or the the resort side of things locked in as far as from a knowledge perspective, and you'd worked in the food service and sales and marketing. What was the learning curve like on the mountain operations side and just starting to work with lifts and grooming and snowmaking and terrain and, and all these things that you have to worry about outside? What was that like and what was the crew like that was in place managing those things?
0: I actually just got chills when you asked me that question because I was thinking about, I mean, I am still learning. I mean, even though I've been in this role 16 years, I'm still learning the details of what you just described and what's allowed me to be successful in my position is the fact that we have such veteran mountain operations managers. I mean, let me just give you an example. We've got a gentleman named Jerry Hill who has worked here since 1958. Amazing. As, as far as we can tell, he's the longest tenured ski resort employee in the entire country. You know, he started working here at age fourteen. Um, I won't tell you his age today, but you can figure it out. And uh, he 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 is still full time. He still oversees you know our mountain in many ways the the grooming, the snowmaking, and and this guy is a legend. And he's just one of many. I mean, I could go down a long line of people who have been here as long as me, and in, in some cases, longer than me. And these people are the ones who really shape this mountain and and make it happen. So I've had the benefit of, of truly learning from them over the years. But
1: I'm also grateful that we have experts in each of those areas. Wow, 1958. So, so let's get into the history here a little bit. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Chad, but I believe that might take us into the Timp Haven era, which was the small scaria area on the site of what is now Sundance or close to the site of what is now Sundance. Is that the case, or or or, or am I? Is, How's is my timeline there? <laughs> what, yeah, no, the- I'm
0: I'm really impressed impressed with your research. You, you've got it. Uh, Tim Haven started in 1944. So just like a lot of the ski areas, you know, kind of a re- result of World War II, 10th Mountain Division, a lot of those people coming back. Uh, a local family named the Stewarts who had homesteaded this area, and particularly particularly one of their sons named Ray Stewart. Who said, "Hey, let's make this a commercial venture." And he bought an old Ford truck, motor, built an early rope tow, and officially opened as Stewart, or excuse me, as Timp Haven in uh, 1944. So it really operated as this local uh, ski area from then up until
1: the 60s when when the Redford era came in. So let's talk about that. Robert Redford comes in in the 60s, changes the name to Sundance, modernizes it. Tell us about Mister Redford and his vision for Sundance. Yeah. It's
0: a really important part of the story. And I like to emphasize one thing that I think people probably misunderstand, which is Robert Redford bought this area before he was a major movie star, before he had the financial resources. I think people assume it's the other way around, right? He was a movie star. He probably had the money and it was almost like, Hey, here's a nice tax advantage. Right. And that is not the case. Um, he officially bought it in 1968. And this was right about the same time he was auditioning to be in the film, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which was his breakout role that then, of course, turned him into a a mega movie star, right, with a lot of success. But he committed to Sundance prior to that. And the reason he did was because the Stewart family, they were being approached by developers And Redford kept hearing stories that they were going to sell it to developers. And he was really concerned. And I'm sorry, I should back up first of all and tell you that he first of all bought two acres of land here in 1961. He and his wife did because his wife was from Provo, Utah, not far from here. And so they just bought two acres of land, built a small cabin. And then as time passed, like I said, you know, by the mid 60s, late 60s, he started hearing these rumors of the Stewart selling. So he literally went and knocked on their door one night, their cabin up here, and he said, hey, if you're going to sell this land, I need to buy it, you know. And the reason he wanted to buy it was not from, from necessarily a business perspective or to be in the ski industry. He bought it because he wanted to preserve the canyon and develop it in the right way. And so you're exactly right. So then 1969, it was officially, you know, the name was changed and Sundance, of course, being, you know connected to the film Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, I mean, it's kind of obvious to some. Others don't quite understand that. And I'll also say, you know, Robert Redford, I don't know that he thought that was the best name initially. Um, yeah, he. I think he thought it was a little bit odd to name it, you know, after a character in a film. But obviously, it's an incredible name. It's made up an incredible brand. But that's really how he came to be. Now, I, I, I'm kind of going out of order here. But the first time he came through this area was about 1958. He was playing baseball at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and he was from California. And on one of those drives, this was probably around 1956, 1957, actually, he drove through Provo Canyon and took this drive up this canyon that we call Sundance Canyon today. And he saw Mount Timpanogos and just fell in love with it and thought it was just one of the most beautiful areas. And then coincidentally, about a year later, he falls in love with and marries this woman um, from Provo, um, And, uh, and that's kind of how it all came to be. So it was just kind of a, you know, it it almost seems like a coincidence, but I think it was not, I think it was all kind of meant to be because he's obviously, he was the right steward and the developer of this brand and, and preserving this Canyon as much as he has.
1: So talk a little bit, Chad, about what Mr. Redford actually bought and what he's done with the land over the years, because the Sundance ski area is actually a very small part of that property. So just help us understand the scope of what he built and, and how he's worked to conserve and preserve that land over the years. Yeah, so it, it was in stages of purchasing
0: the land up here, but when it was all said and done, it was a little over 5,000 acres that he acquired. And probably the most important detail of the story is that today, out of those 5,000 acres well over half of that land is put into conservation easements or under protective covenants which means it can never be developed and um and that's the biggest thing that he's done and so you know I'm sure we'll get into our new ownership team here in a moment but what that meant was that if he ever sold Sundance which he did it meant that future owners would need to honor all of that land preservation commitment and you know as you also said I think it's really important for your listeners to understand that out of all that land, yeah, our ski mountain sits on about 500 of those acres, you know, so based on ski mountain sizes compared to other resorts here in Utah, yeah, we're kind of a smaller ski mountain with 500 acres. I mean, we have amazing terrain. I mean, all the skiing you need, but the ski mountain in many ways is just kind of a small part of this overall master plan of conservation, preserving this canyon and really programming the land for other uses such as, you know, um, cross-country skiing, uh, snowshoeing, horseback riding in the summertime, uh, hiking, just there's so much you can do here um, beyond the ski mountain.
1: So help us understand the boundaries of this 5,000-some acres. As you're orienting us from, from the Sundance ski area, where does the land extend and what does it include? Yeah, so basically, as you drive up Sundance Canyon,
0: basically everything, you know, most most of the land on both the left and right-hand side of that Canyon coming all the way up is Sundance property. You get up into the Canyon, which is this little Valley for those who haven't been here and really all the property you can see as you look around the whole, the whole Valley is Sundance property. Some of it now just resides with kind of what we call the Redford ranch. Um, Now there's, there's about 170 or so private lots that were subdivided prior to Redford, even buying the land. So there's about 175 private homes within that, but you hardly even see those homes because again, they're all kind of built within the trees. So you're mostly seeing nature. And then maybe the most stunning thing is then on the other side, if you keep going up Canyon past Sundance property, you then go right into national forest land. And then you have, I don't know how many tens of thousands of acres of national forest land. So this whole area is really protected. I mean, it's, it can never become what a lot of other ski areas have become. And I'm saying that in a good way, meaning it will always remain very nature-based, very low development, and and just not a lot other than, you know, maintaining the the beautiful landscape in the canyon.
1: So talk real quick, Chad, about Robert Redford as a person. I think Hollywood stars especially have the mystique surrounding them and and people are very curious about their lives and who they really are as a person. And as you mentioned, you worked with him very closely for years and years. So talk about Robert Redford and, and your relationship with him and what he's like as a person. Yeah, I'm happy to because he he truly is one of
0: my heroes, one of my favorite people, one of my greatest mentors. He's, I think the, the, the qualities I would say he has, first of all, humility, uh, generosity, commitment. Um, he... What he's done with Sundance is truly a gift to everybody who comes here. I mean, he could have done so many other things. He he sacrificed so much of his financial resources, so much of his time to really make Sundance what it is today. And I hope and I believe that he got a lot in return just as far as you know, his happiness of sharing Sundance with the world. But there are so many other ways he could have spent his time and his money. And he always dedicated that to Sundance more than anything. Uh, in my opinion. And and so much of what else he did in film and with the film festival and all the other Sundance entities, all of that was born out of this place. And an, another thing that he talks about is that, you know, great brands need to have a place. And he's always loved the fact that Sundance, you know, because there are a lot of other Sundance brands, as you know, the Sundance Film Festival, the Sundance Catalog, you know, Sundance TV, but all these places kind of connect back to this place. Um, so, I would just say he's a very committed man. Uh, And again, just someone who was willing to sacrifice
1: a lot to allow others to benefit. Can you just talk quickly about the film festival, Chad? I think most people have heard of the Sundance film festival and, and are familiar with that, which, which now actually takes place mostly in park city, but just talk about that festival and how important it has been to the ski area over the years. It's pretty remarkable what it's done. And you know, I've heard Redford tell this story
0: that when they're trying to figure out what time of the year to, to do the festival, they thought, well, let's do it in winter, just because that's kind of weird, right? You wouldn't expect yeah. to go to the mountains of Utah in the winter. Now, this right. is back in 1985, kind of before Utah was really on the map as a ski destination like it is today, you know, and so it was kind of a bizarre thing that they even chose to do it in, you know, the last part of January, but it, you know, pretty much from that first year, it was very successful. I mean, of course, it's grown so much over the years, but 1985 was the first year. It was always based in Park City, but here at Sundance Resort, which we're 45 minutes from Park City, we have a screening room theater. So we do screenings here as well as part of the festival. Um, it generates, I believe, it's well over $100 million to the economy of Utah in those 10 days with just the amount of traffic uh, that it brings into the state. Um, I think as it relates to the ski industry, one interesting thing is oftentimes the festival would fall over, um, I think, yeah, it would have been President's Weekend, and that was always a conflict, right? Because here you've got one of the busiest ski weekends for the resorts, you've got the festival, and so, you know, maybe five or six years ago, the Sundance Institute, who manages the festival, worked very well with all the local ski resorts, and they decided to always... Move it enough so that the, the festival wouldn't fall over president's weekend to kind of nice. avoid that, that conflict. Um, but yeah, I know all the resorts have benefited here from having that festival. It just brings so many people in um, the Utah office of tourism has always said that the Sundance film festival is the greatest marketing and advertising for the state of Utah, you know, maybe equal or similar to the, the Olympics of 2002, but in many ways the, the film festival has really put Utah on the map.
1: So Robert Redford really created something special, both in the ski area and around it over the decades. Two years ago, he decided it was time to sell and and sold to a, a pair of investment groups, Broadreach Capital Partners and Cedar Capital Partners. Why was it time to sell? You know,
0: the thing I like to point out, it's not that he and his family had any less commitment or love or passion for Sundance. I think the I think the answer is just they truly felt like the best way to continue their legacy, the best way to make sure that Sunnance is successful long term for generations would be to pass that baton, pass that responsibility, pass that stewardship, pass the capital investment requirement, you know that that's necessary for a ski resort to to pass that along and to do it during Robert Redford's lifetime to so that he could personally be involved in selecting that next steward of the company. And that's exactly what happened. You know, we announced the sale December 11th of 2020, but I'll tell you, it was about a three-year process leading up to that, you know, vetting through hundreds of potential interested parties and really Robert Redford and his family being able to select who they felt was the right next owner and steward of Sundance. And that's exactly what happened. We have a, we have an ownership group that is, you know they're not private equity. People sometimes call them private equity. They're not private equity. These are people who are established veterans in hotel, resort, ski industry who truly saw this as a passion project and an opportunity for them to just kind of cement their legacy and their more importantly, they apply their their experience and their success into this as kind of a legacy passion project to ensure that it it continue continues the Robert Redford vision. That's exactly kind of
1: the, the whole model. And, and I'm telling you, it's, it's working really well. So who are the new owners and what is their long-term vision for Sundance?
0: Yeah. I mean, like you mentioned, it's a, it's a group of individuals, both with uh, broad reach, which is based in California and Cedar capital, which is based in New York and London. Um, they are very, so although they don't live here in Utah, they really understand and connect with the local, uh, community here and understand the benefits of that. They are, uh, they're committed, I would say much longer term than traditional private equity. I mean, they, they would love to hold this long term. You know, if, if I shouldn't say if I'm going to say when our business plan works, you know, our (laughs) capital improvement plan and what that does for us as a business, I believe it's going to provide them the success and their investors the success because they do have investors beyond them. And that's an important part of business, obviously, but I believe that we'll provide the success that allows them to make this a long-term hold. No one has interest in this, you know, just turning over every few years. Um, I mean, the Redfords had it for 51 years. I would
1: fully expect that this team will continue to hold it for quite some time. So one of the first things, one of the first moves from this new group was to bring on Ski and Snowboard Hall of Famer, Bill Jensen, to help out he, Jensen, for those who don't know, he's held leadership roles at Vail, at Whistler, at Telluride, at Interwest. Talk a little bit about Jensen, what it's like to work with him and what kind of energy he's brought into the operation.
0: Probably one of the best gifts we've been given here at Sundance is having Bill Jensen involved. And when I first met him about um, two and a half years ago, prior to the transaction, I thought, hey, this is going to be great to have a, a veteran, right? I had no idea at that time how impactful his, his involvement would be i mean he is as you just mentioned he's he's truly considered one of the most um respected most veteran ski resort industry leaders in the country um there's evidence of that because of his lifetime achievements awards being in the ski hall of fame his track record now, when I go to events, everyone's like, Bill Jensen, how did you get Bill Jensen involved in Sundance? <laughs> you know, and they want to know like, and and everybody in the, in the industry knows Bill. And, and so it's just kind of like open this whole new world for us. And he will get involved on any level we want him to. So again, he's not involved in day-to-day operations, but anytime I have a question or if our VP of operations has a question, we want to bounce an idea. We essentially want to be coached. We have, you know the nation's best ski industry coach now that we can turn to and say, Hey, Bill, what would you do here? What would you do there? And you know, with things like our, our ski expansion, our, our lift development, he's been very, very hands-on and has really helped shape a lot of our decision-making and he's just great to work with. I can't say enough good things about his involvement and, and what that's meant to us as a,
1: as a brand and as a product. Okay, quick break. Then back to Chad and Sundance. I've got an awesome deal for you. Snowbound Expo is coming. After two years dormant, the former Boston Ski Show has been purchased by Raccoon Events and renamed Snowbound Expo. The show will offer a huge speaker lineup that includes Bode Miller, Conrad Anker, Dan Egan, Vasu Sujitra, Danny Reyes-Acosta, Lindsey Fixmer, and more. You will also find sales on the latest gear, apparel, and resort passes. And you can try a dry ski slope and kickback with friends at the Opry Ski Mountain Bar. The show is November 18th to 20th at Boston Heinz Convention Center. Tickets are normally $15 per day, but Snowbound Expo is offering Storm listeners free tickets for the entire weekend. To claim your tickets, visit snowboundexpo.com and use Storm at checkout. I will be there doing a live podcast, and I hope to meet you in person. So anyone who hasn't been to Sundance in the past couple years might not recognize the place, the way it skis, the way it flows. Just talk about what the changes have been around Sundance over the last two years and how the ski experience has evolved, And, and, and talk about how involved Bill was in helping you to determine which moves to make.
0: You know, it all started, uh, that would have been summer of 2020 when they were still kind of in the due diligence stage, the deal wasn't done. And they asked myself and our senior leadership team, what would we do? What would be the first things we would do if we had capital, you know, to really further improve Sundance? And our answers were snowmaking, new lifts and adding, you know, some additional parking, and it was like immediate alignment because that's exactly the conclusion that they had come to as well. So once the deal was done and announced, we went on a very, very rapid plan and immediately you know committed with Doppelmayr to build two chairlifts that year. That would have been the year of 2021 and we've, you know, expanded and improved and updated our snowmaking system. And we did add some adi- additional parking. So literally within like the first nine months, we got all those projects done. It, it was, it was, it was a bit much. It, it really pushed yeah. the team here. We we took on a lot, but we got it done just in time last year. And, uh, and it's, it's, you know, I'm happy to speak in more detail to any of that, but um, I I think the biggest, well, let let me let – I'll let you ask. I, I could go so many directions here, but uh, <laughs> let, I'll let you
1: kind of guide me where you want me to go. <laughs> yeah, let's start with that with that lift project, Chad, because this was a really interesting one. So you had this very unique raised lift, which had two mid-stations, two bottom stations. It went up and over the top. It was a, a really long chair. It was a fixed-grip chair, and you retired that and replaced it with two chair lifts, the Outlaw Express, which is a high speed quad rising up the front side. And then you put a shorter lift called Stairway up the back side. So I guess start by telling us about this unique raise lift that was in place before and why it was time for an upgrade.
0: Yeah. Raise, you know, like you said, was put in in 1995. So it'd certainly run its course. And it, it Oftentimes people would come, industry experts would come and say, that's a weird lift. I mean, just the way, like you said, because it had the two mid stations, it went up over the mountain, dropped you down to the back mountain. All of that was done with the idea of, you know, being able to get people to and from the back mountain, even if there wasn't adequate snow on the front mountain. Now, the reality is we never really used it that way. So it was kind of misdesigned to begin with. It also, as you said, was slow. So, you know, it was fixed grip. So it was a 25 minute lift ride on a good oh my day. Gosh. I wow. mean, can you, yeah, 25 minutes. It was a <laughs> commitment to get on that lift and ride 25 minutes, right? So <laughs> people would typically only want to ride that lift once a day, really just to get to the back mountain versus lapping it. So, so we are long overdue in wanting to upgrade that. And, and we knew we wanted to, wanted it to be our first high speed detachable chairlift. Now there were some complications with that. And first of all, we, we thought we'd put it right in the same lift line. Well, one day we were up there looking. I mean, this would have been in like January of 2021. I mean, right after we committed to Doppelmayr to build it and we were starting to design it. And we looked up to this higher peak where an old lift called Mandan used to go. And we said, you know what? Should we just go all the way up to that upper peak? And uh, we thought, yes, we should. But the problem with that is it then meant we needed to create a midway station on Outlaw Express. And to create a midway station on a on a high speed is very expensive. It's about an extra million dollars to do that. But we had to create a way for beginner intermediate skiers to get off before they'd go all the way up to the higher point. But we decided it was worth that investment. And then to your point, we also had to have a way to connect it from that upper point down to the back mountain, which is why we then put in the lift called stairway, which is a fixed grip chair lift because it's quite short. It's short and it's steep, which is why we thought the name stairway um, we liked the idea of calling it stairway to heaven, but we thought that might be a trademark issue with Led Zeppelin. Right. <laughs> so we just went with stairway, um, which we thought kind of a fun name. And, uh, and that's how it came to be. And I'll tell you, people have responded so well to it because anyone who skied here prior to 1995, they remember that old Mandan lift. And that terrain is terrain that we recaptured because it hasn't been lift service since, uh, 1995. So it was a huge upgrade for us. And by the way, Outlaw Express is now a longer lift than, you know, Rays was to get to that summit and it takes seven minutes
1: versus 25 minutes. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) So the, the Outlaw Express, you moved the, the, there, there was also a mid station on Rays that was at mid mountain. The Outlaw Express mid station is a little bit different spot. Talk about the difference that that has made and, and how you like that mid station as opposed to the old one.
0: Yeah. We, we actually thought through carefully um, how it could be most, um, beginner friendly. And that's truly what made us put it there. It's in a spot where it has the, you know, the, the best grade for a beginner skier. It's just easier for them to access the beginner runs from that area. So it was truly to say, Hey, how do we improve that beginner skier experience? And so, you know, if you're a beginner skier, yeah, you're going to get off on that midway point. And if you're an intermediate expert, you're going to ride up the top and access a whole other area of the mountain.
1: So you also put stairway on a new line and. That's landing Looker's left of the old lift. It loads closer to Red's lift. Just talk about choosing the new alignment for Stairway and how happy you are with that. Yeah, that alignment had everything just
0: to do with the fact that we we do so much business in the summertime of scenic Mm -hmm. lift rides and our zip line. So we had to have a way to connect foot passengers all year round. And that's why uh, Stairway had to be aligned the way it was so that both of their top terminals are next to each other, Stairway and Outlaw Express. So if you're here in the summertime, you can you can ride a series of three chair lifts that'd be Outlock mm-hmm. Express, Stairway and then Red's lift oh, cool. get all the way to the top of our back mountain and that's where our zip tour experience starts which we run that summer and fall one of the you know one of the country's best zip tours not to mention we have the little restaurant called Bear Claw's cabin up there that we serve food all summer long as well. So you know we're one of those resorts that we do a lot of business in the summertime and by the, having this lift alignment the way it is we, we can do a lot of um, uh, foot
1: passengers. So really interesting that Outlaw was Sundance's first high-speed lift. If you look at Reds, it has almost the same vertical rise as Outlaw. That was put in just in 2016. It's a fixed grip quad. Was there a particular reason why Sundance had avoided high-speed chairs up until last year?
0: I, I would say it's prim- it was primarily a financial decision at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, if I could wave the magic wand and go back to 2016, I wish that was a high-speed chair, (laughs) but the good news for all listeners and anybody who skis here at Sundance is, you know, we have plans for another high-speed chair back there at some point. And when that goes in, it almost eliminates the need to even ski off of Red's lift. And I can explain that more later or or now, but, you know, so the good news is it's not like we made this massive mistake. It's just that we have a, a development plan that with time there's a plan where we can get most of the back mountain access um, serviced from a high-speed chair.
1: I don't I don't think I can leave the listeners hanging on that one, Chad. They're <laughs> going to want to know about that high-speed lift you just mentioned. Talk us through that project, uh, what you know about it, and what your potential timeline might be.
0: Yeah, thank you. And by the way, any listeners, especially anybody here in Utah who skis here a lot, please know there's no set timeline on this yet. But <laughs> if I was going to guess, I'm thinking this is probably a 2024, 25, 26 wow. project, something like that. So we're talking just you know a few years away, not far Bring off. Up. Yeah. Um, but it would be a high-speed chairlift that would start down near the base of our new Wildwood lift. Okay. So if anybody, you know, maybe if you're listening to this, pull up our trail map, look at that, look at the base of Wildwood lift. The high-speed chair would start there, and then it would terminate. It'd go up over Far East area, and it would terminate at the top of Bishop's Bowl, right by Bear Claw's cabin. And what's amazing about that is you could basically ski the entire back mountain by just lapping that one high-speed chairlift. And it would be a lot of vertical drop. It's a lot of acreage. It really allows people to lap ski in that far east area, which is some of our most expert advanced terrain. Um, It's pretty amazing. And then whether you want me to touch on this now or later, but it does allow us to open more terrain as well. There is some additional land that we could open for skiing
1: when and if that lift happens. Yeah. Let's talk about it. What, what kind of terrain, how much?
0: Yeah. It's um again, if you're from, if you're skiing down Bishop's bowl, it'd be to the right-hand side. There's another bowl that kind of goes over an edge there. Um, the locals call it trailer court bowl because it ends up down at a, well, it used to end up down at a trailer court in the Canyon years ago, Okay, but we can capture that whole like top half or the two thirds of that bowl. And then people would traverse over on a, on a cat track. And, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's, it's substantial. I mean, it can add a few hundred acres of additional skiing when we do everything that we could do, you know, and the fact that we're 500 acres now, yeah,
1: we could get pretty close to being an 800 acre, you know, mountain. That sounds incredible. So what would the vertical rise on that lift be? Yeah. You know, that's a good question. I let's see here.
0: I would, I would, um, I'd have to do some quick, well, I'd be, it'd be guessing. I, I better not even say, but basically yeah, if you look at the elevation at the base of Wildwood, I'm going to have to find that out now, Stuart, you got me wondering about that, but yeah, the base of uh, our new Wildwood up to the top of Bearclaw, um, whatever that difference is, but it's, it's substantial. I mean, I, it's got to be a
1: couple thousand feet. Right. Okay, great. So would that replace Flathead then, Chad? That's the oldest lift you have on the mountain. And in fact, the only lift that you have that's more than about 15 years old. You're exactly
0: right. Yeah. Flathead was put in in 1975. It's so iconic in some ways we hate to ever get rid of that lift. I'm, I'm a, well, that story I told you of my first day ever skiing, that was the lift that I went on. It was before oh my gosh. Arrowhead was there before Red's lift. And, uh, wow. but yeah, we, we would absolutely retire flathead once we put in this high speed chair, because there's no, it's totally redundant Um, even reds lift, um, for skiing is a bit redundant, but we would keep reds lift in because of the summer traffic, right? So that we can have that flow for the scenic lift riders, the zip tour riders. But again, you could ski the whole back mountain just by lapping the, uh, the high speed chairlift. And are you thinking about a high speed quad here? Would it be enough terrain to do a six pack? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, Definitely high speed. We're thinking quad, but it, it could be a six pack. I mean, we actually considered six pack for Outlaw Express. Mm, oh wow. And when it was all said and done, we went with the quad for a few different reasons. Um, it it may have been a little bit of the influence because that was during COVID when we were putting like one person on each chair. <laughs> <laughs> right. we're like, Maybe we shouldn't design a chair with six people. You know? No, I mean, that was kind of a funny side note. But um,
1: yeah, we haven't decided if that'd be a quad or a six pack, but it will be fun to see for sure. So there's a couple things that resorts tend to consider when they're deciding between a quad and a six pack. And I would love to hear your process for choosing a, a, four, a four place for outlaw. So, you know, one is obviously expense, right? Can we afford mm-hmm. it? And the other is not wanting to overload the trails, right? By putting that extra whatever amount of people it is per hour, 1,200 people per hour or whatever, onto the hill that a six pack gives you. What? What was your reasoning behind deciding on a four for outlaw when you considered a six as well?
0: I think because this was our first step of even a high speed, it felt a little bit aggressive to go first high speed six pack, you know, Yeah, but we at least studied it. And in the end it just, you know, I can't say there was any definitive reason other than saying it just felt right to go as a quad. You know, (laughs) I think for the reasons you mentioned that, you know, we we don't want to, we don't want to put too many people too fast in some ways. I mean, we want to test the terrain, see how it feels. Um, and again, I just, I like six packs, but sometimes getting six on, I mean, it's, you know, it can get a little clunky at times, right? I mean, it's, uh, I think four is much more user friendly in a lot of ways. Um, I'm not anti six packs. I mean, I, they're great, but, um, I think with Outlaw because it's right at our base area, um, you know, just the size of it, just, Yeah, I think there are a lot of things that went into that, but, but we'll see with this, when we do the the high speed on the back mountain, uh, it'll be fun to see what we, what we end up deciding.
1: So funny story about outlaw that you put it in, in 2021, as you mentioned, and there's just all kinds of supply chain problems all over. And and there still are really, there's several resorts that are scrambling to finish their new lifts this year, but you, you got everything in place, but you didn't have the chairs. So (laughs) talk to us about how you got chairs for outlaw.
0: Well, kind of like all of our lives during COVID, there was there were always these surprises, and I almost thought somebody was playing a joke on us when uh, we first started getting you know word that the chairs were delayed. And again, what I understand is that due to supply chain, they were on a ship. The ship could have been here in time, but the issue was they're coming into the port of Long Beach, and if you remember, Long Beach was just clogged. There was just so yeah. much backup, mm-hmm. and so they literally couldn't you know dock in Long Beach, and we knew we couldn't have those chairs here in time for our opening. We just marketed and sold season passes based on a new high-speed chairlift. So we had some sleepless nights, but I got to give a lot of credit to Doppelmeyer, the lift manufacturer who built it for us. They they really went ahead and they found that solution for us. Um, I know you have some of the details on that solution, but it was truly Doppelmeyer who who made that deal happen, who got some some temporary used chairs for us. We got them down here. Um, and it was, it was funny how excited we are. We all were to see some used chairs show up, you know, and those <laughs> chairs went on and they operated well. In fact, a lot of people didn't even know that they were used temporary chairs. And then I think it was in, let's see, I think it was like late January, the actual chairs showed up and over the course of about 24, 36 hours over, you know, with the team working overnight, they got all of the, the permanent new chairs uh, replaced and put on there.
1: So the chairs came from Big Sky, owned by Boyne Resorts, and they're on their way to Sugarloaf in Maine, which is also owned by Boyne Resorts. And, and they will go on the Swift Current Quad, which is being moved out there to serve Sugarloaf's new West Mountain, which uh, my East Coast listeners, including me, are super, super excited about. So um, so, so those, those chairs will be the rare ones that ran on three different ski areas, which is pretty cool. You know, Stuart, this is
0: probably one of the reasons why you're so
1: successful with your podcast. You do a lot of research and
0: you know these things. I, I didn't even know that. Um, I mean, that's incredible. What a fun story. We should. I wish we could put like a little plaque that those chairs were at Sundance, right? That'd be kind of fun.
1: <laughs> you know, Boyne might do that. They're, they're pretty open to things like that. <laughs> so, all right. So while we're on the subject of chair lifts, let's just talk about your other front side lift, which is Jake's. And there actually was a lift there for a long, long time called Navajo. And that was retired in 1995 when Rays came online. And you brought it back. So so talk about, since you've been there for so long, talk about why Sundance removed Navajo and why ultimately it made sense to bring a lift back in that line called Jake's. Yeah, great question. And, and
0: um, Navajo... So when I started skiing here and even when I started working here, was up until 1995, there were two chairlifts on the front. There was Navajo and Mandan. And when, when raised lift went in, the idea was that raised lift replaced both of those, even though we lost some of that terrain on the upper portion of Mandan. So there was no purpose to continue operating Navajo because everything from, you know, you could access all that terrain from raised lift. So sadly Navajo and Mandan went away and for a lot of years, we just had that one lift on the front mountain. And what started happening is as we got busier, had more demands for parking, we started creating a parking lot in the upper area. And we were shuttling all these people from the upper area down to the base to then get on Ray's lift. And we thought, wow, if we could have a chair lift that would take off from that upper parking lot, that would be a lot more convenient for our guests. So that was the whole idea behind Jake's lift. And it's actually not the exact same lift line as Navajo. Navajo is quite a bit more to the right or to, to the north of that. Um, and, and this is kind of a funny and, and interesting Robert Redford story, which was the first plans for Jake's lift had it going kind of right up the middle of Maverick ski run, like just right up the middle. And me and others, we, we hadn't even thought about how bad that was that it would go right up the middle of a ski run. And we were showing the plans to Robert Redford and he's like, guys, 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 you know, and he he took out a pen and he started drawing on the map. He's like, you need to move the lift to the left. And there was an old line. It was a, they, I think we call it the Poma line. It was an old Poma lift that was there, which would have been before. I mean, it was probably in the 50, how, 50s, 60s, certainly before I started skiing here. There was an older lift over on this far left side and there was still a clearing in the trees there. And, and that's what Redford said. He's like, you got to put the lift over there. And it made so much more sense versus putting it right in the middle of the ski run. So um, so that's where where Jake's lift went. And, you know, our our skiers really have appreciated that. Um, It's a lot more convenient just taking off right there from the uh, upper parking lot.
1: And that Navajo lift, it had a mid station kind of up in the mid mountain. Why did you decide or did you consider putting a mid station in Jake's and ultimately why did you decide not to?
0: Yeah. You know, Jake's actually has kind of a, I guess an unusual mid station where it's a, it's a mid station that you don't, you can't unload, but you can load there. Uh, and the reason why is from Jake's lift, we have our terrain park and a lot of the skiers and snowboarders will just lap that and they can actually just kind of reload Jake's from there versus skiing to the bottom of it, which might sound kind of funny because you always want to ski longer. Right. But that bottom part of Jake's lift with the way it's configured right now, it actually crosses uh, a road, which is not ideal. So people don't love to lap that over and over. So you can reload that and just ski kind of the upper three, qu- probably the upper two thirds of Jake's lift. Now, one thing is we're actually next year going to do a road realignment so that that ski run doesn't cross that road. And then we can further improve oh, wow. the lower part of that ski run.
1: Oh, wow. That's that's going to be really great. So where is the road going to go instead?
0: Yeah, it's kind of hard to describe. Describe without looking at a map, but basically, when you come up to that upper lot, you take a right-hand turn to come into the parking lot. And if you keep going straight, there's a little ticket office, and the road will kind of continue right where that ticket office is, and it will hug more what I would call the right side or the north side of that parking lot. Whereas currently, it's on the left side of the south side. Um, so it's a big project, but we're scheduled to do that this next uh, this next spring, early summer.
1: Nice. All right. Well, let's talk about snowmaking. Snowmaking is not necessarily. A huge thing in Utah compared to some regions of the country, but that's really been a priority under these new owners. So talk about your snowmaking system, how much the new owners have improved it over these past few years and long-term, just what are your plans for the system? Yeah. Snowmaking, as you
0: said, I mean, it's just become more and more critical. So the, the big things we've done, the first thing was we built a 19 million gallon pond. Wow. And what's interesting, and I'm so glad that I can tell the story this way, which is hundred percent true. A lot of the experts who came in looked at it. Um, we, they said we had one of the most natural impressions to build a reservoir of anywhere they had seen. It's kind of mid-mountain on the south side, kind of near where this new ski pod is. And it was this natural impress, impression. So we didn't have to do much dirt work, excavation. We didn't have to build a dam or anything like that. But it's a pond that holds 19 million gallons of water, which is just incredible. Um, so that was the first thing. The other thing is our old system could pump about 800 gallons per minute with our system. Now, after the, this year's updates, as well as last year's updates, we can now do 3000 gallons per minute capacity. Wow. Um, wow. so it's, it's a substantial upgrade. It just gives us a lot of more horsepower so that we can take advantage of those smaller snowmaking weather windows and just
1: maximize our opportunities. Do you think you're going to stay focused on the lower mountain or eventually are you going to try to move that system up the mountain? Yeah, we will move it up the mountain. Um, as you just
0: said, most of the snowmaking system now is all the front mountain. It's the new 40 acres that we're opening this year. Uh, and then the, the upper back mountain, you know, which naturally gets more snow, but we certainly want to further expand the snowmaking um, in more areas up
1: there too. What's the upper limit here, Chad? Are you facing water restrictions, limitations? I know this is an issue throughout the West, particularly in parts of Utah. Is this an issue for Sundance?
0: Slightly. We did, we did experience an emergency reduction in our water rights this year due to the drought conditions. So our total water rights this year were reduced by a percentage, but we're, we're totally in good shape, um, to still make all the snow we need. Um, you know, but we're all, we're always watching closely and looking at options and making sure that, you know, and most importantly, we're all about conservation. I mean, this, this Canyon, Um, I'm on the, I'm on the board of directors of the North Fork special services district, which is basically, you know, we're under the County. So it's basically the government of this little Canyon and we're all doing all that we can, all the residents, any of the businesses in this Canyon, we're all, we we've, we're conserving a lot of water right now. We're just changing people's behaviors. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's an issue, but it's not, it's, it's not prohibiting us from doing what we
1: want to do. All right. You've mentioned this new expansion coming online for this 22 to 23 ski season several times. So let's get into it. This is a really exciting project. You announced it last April, moving very quickly. Tell us about this expansion, Chad, where it will be on the mountain, what kind of terrain we're getting, what kind of lift and, and everything else you have planned back there.
0: We are so excited about this terrain. I mean, I, you know, we, 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 we've been working on this for a couple of years and it wasn't until I went up there this summer and I walked, the runs after they had graded some of them that I got really excited. I mean, to answer your question, it's 40 acres. that will be new terrain, never skied terrain, open up this winter that is all service from this new chairlift called Wildwood. Wildwood lift is a fixed grip. And the reason we didn't do, you know, a high speed there is because Wildwood, it's only about, you know, it's about a 2300 foot long lift line. It'll only be about a five minute ride. And, um, you know, so it, it's perfect, a perfect size for that area. Uh, the runs themselves, uh, I should have this in front of me going off memory. I believe it's four intermediate. There's four beginner, there's one black diamond and then one cat track. And, um, so it's really a good mix. I mean, mostly beginner intermediate, of course, but the intermediate runs, I think are going to really, really amaze people. And, you know, one of the things we'd identified is we we needed more beginner terrain. And this certainly gives us that. Um, Now, it is south facing, which has pros Mm -hmm. and cons. You know, obviously, we know that south facing is more (laughs) difficult to keep snow on. um, But we're going to have all the snowmaking capability that we need on these runs. And then what we love about the south facing is all these runs are going to get that early morning sunshine. I think it's going to be where skiers just flock to in those early mornings, you know, cause the snow's going to soften up. It'll be great for learning. Uh, it should just be a lot of fun.
1: What's the vertical back there, Chad?
0: You know, the vertical is, let's see, I think it's 500. Um, I think it's about 576 feet if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You have uh you have trail names.
0: Yeah, we do. Yeah. We have some fun trail names. Um, just to share a few with you, uh, maybe some of the, the more unique ones, uh, the two kind of iconic intermediate runs. One is called hot bread and the Mm -hmm. other one's called honey butter. Nice. And people are like, why? Well, Uh there was a tradition here in Sundance in the seventies and eighties where Sundance would serve this iconic thick sliced hot bread, just layered with honey butter. Right. And it was Mm -hmm. like, people just loved it. And we haven't had it for a lot of years. And over the years, I've had so many people say to me, Chad, you got to bring back the hot bread and honey butter. Well, this year, we're bringing it back in the form of two ski runs. But more importantly, in our, in our skiers' restaurant, we're going to serve hot bread and honey butter. Oh, so that's, that's kind, kind of, of fun. a fun a fun tie-in. Uh, another name would be uh, – there's a run called Bluebird, which um, obviously we know Bluebird like Bluebird Ski Day. But we also have a partnership with the bluebird cafe in Nashville, Tennessee, which is a singer songwriters cafe. And we, we bring a lot of their musicians out here in the summertime to perform under that name, bluebird. So that's kind of a fun name. Um, let's see sidewinder slingshot. Um, let's see, uh, draw. I mean, these are some of the names that we have. They're all on the website, but yeah, they're, they're great. There's some fun names. Do you have an opening date scheduled well, our opening date for the whole mountain is targeted for December 9th. And, you know, as long as we get this, either the natural snow or the cold temperatures, we anticipate that all this new beginner
1: intermediate train would open then as well. But yeah, we're we're scheduled for December 9th. How's lift construction on Wildwood been going? I just wrote a story on Whistler Blackcomb having some lift delays, one of them substantial for the new gondola. That's uh, going to open probably toward the end of December, early January now. And a lot of folks have been having these supply chain issues. So have you had any issues with that Wildwood lift? And and we're, by the way, for anyone listening, we're rec- recording this on November 7th. So these things change rapidly, but just talk about that process and how it's been going this- so far.
0: Yeah, relatively well. Uh, Doppelmeyer is doing a great job. Initially, you know, the lift was scheduled to be done in October um, that got pushed into November and, 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 and we're okay. We'll be fine. Cause again, our opening date's December 9th. Um, but Doppelmeyer is fully committed that this lift will be fully running and commissioned to us by the end of November. Um, so yeah, we feel good about where we're at. It'll allow us to then get the snowmaking done, you know, pending the temperatures and the weather and so forth. But uh, here in a few weeks, it'll officially be um, handed over to us.
1: So long term, Chad, you described that big expansion that you have coming up, and that sounds really exciting. Once you put that in place, will the mountains potential development footprint, skiable footprint be maxed out just given where all the conservation easements are and your boundaries and everything else? Will that be the limit or is there more room to expand into the future potentially?
0: Yeah, I would say there's there's one additional area um, that's maybe not a lot of acreage, but it certainly would it would actually it's one area that could give us more elevation. It'd give us a higher top elevation. So if you're riding up uh, Red's lift and you look to the right side, um, our property line goes up that final bowl a little ways, and we could put a lift up there. It I, I don't know. It's not as high of a priority as as this other lift I talked about, just because you know, this, it doesn't serve us a lot of terrain as far as acreage, but it would increase our top, you know, top elevation, which would be very nice. And it would be some really nice expert skiing. Do you know what the top elevation is over there? You know, it's funny. You should ask, uh, my wife and I went and hiked it, um, just, uh, about a month ago. And I actually took, uh, just using my app on my, uh, on my phone and I'm scrolling through my phone right now, trying to find this. So I don't misquote it, but, um, I think it was about. Uh, I'm going off memory.
1: Is is about another three or four hundred feet higher than the top now? Nice, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. All right, it'd be a nice little extension. Yeah. One thing I, I just want to go back to this one little detail. You mentioned that the new lift would go up to where Bear Clock Cabin is. Beautiful views up there. It's a little bit of a rustic, uh, rustic building without the sort of, uh, you know, modern amenities that the skiers may expect when there's something like that. Any plans to redo Bear Claw as part of that project? Bear Claw is definitely on our
0: list of things we want to improve. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit further down right now. Just there's some complexities with water, wastewater up there. I mean, our, our bathroom facilities are something that we absolutely want to improve up there. We'd love to, you know, have a, a more expansive kitchen that allows us to do more with food and beverage, and just the footprint itself needs to be expanded and larger because on busy days it, it gets maxed out. So it's a it's a high priority, but it is down the list a little bit further. Um, I'm guessing that's out, you know, a few years, but it's such an iconic location, and it's one of the things Robert Redford was so passionate about that location, that cabin. And you know, our new ownership team and all of us here, we feel the same way. We think it's just one of the the biggest charms of Sundance's having a beer and nachos up at that bear claw cabin. It's, you know, you cannot beat the views and the ambiance and just the feeling you get when you're up there.
1: So one really cool element of Sundance and what the new ownership group has been focused on is night skiing, not super common in the West or in Utah, but you've actually enlarged that footprint. So talk about how you've enlarged that footprint and and what the potential is long-term for night skiing at Sundance. Yeah, night skiing, um, its it's been such a... a a
0: nice addition for us. You know, we brought that back in 2009, and um, the new lift did open up a little new terrain. I mean, it's not a lot of terrain, but it added a couple more runs for night skiing. The more important thing that we're doing with night skiing is that we're in the process of upgrading all of our lighting from the traditional older system um, that was kind of the metal halide lights, and updating all of those to LED lights, which of course are much more efficient. They're much, you know, just better for skiing, everything. It's just better all around. And so by next summer, we hope to have all of those lights switched over. I mean, right now, I don't even want to say a percentage, but I'm guessing we're like 70, 70 or 80% are switched over. But by next summer, we'll have 100% switched over. And I think the, you know, one of the ways to your question, how could we you know, further grow night skiing? It's probably more on the nights we do it. You know, Right now, we're doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and we're starting to get a lot of demand. That was one of the things during COVID that did very, very well. So we can always look at adding more nights too.
1: All right, let's walk off today, Chad, with a discussion on passes. One of the things we've seen, particularly around the West, is these reciprocal partnerships where ski, season pass holders at your ski area will get three days at the ski area next door and vice versa. So you have an interesting group of partners. You have Ski Cooper and Snow King, and you also have Mountain Capital Partners, which owns a whole bunch of ski areas. They just bought another one, Wellmet Pass, up in Oregon. Talk about these partnerships and and how they come together and how important they are to your pass holders.
0: Yeah, we we feel like these relationships add value. Certainly, to our season pass holders, um, we th- we think it's a great value add. We don't necessarily think it's critical, but we think it's a nice value add. And and it's interesting. The way it all started was first of all with Brian Head Resort in Southern Utah. And that was before they were owned by Mountain Capital Partners, and we just identified Brian Head. And if if I remember right, I think we reached out to them, and we just said, "Hey, what if we did, did a reciprocal, right?" Because their market is a lot of people from Las Vegas who drive up to Brian Head. Our mar- market is more the Wasatch Front here in Utah, so it was a nice way to kind of introduce each other's you know customers to the other mountain. So it started with Brian Head, and then after a few years, you know, Mountain Capital purchased Brian Head, and so then they wanted to add in some of the other resorts and we said, sure. Um, and then there's been some other one-offs, like you mentioned with Snow King and we, we even have Silverton. Um, but, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to keep growing it. I mean, I think it's, you know, we've had others reach out. Ski Cooper reached out recently and, you know, we're happy to add some here and there, but um, you know, I don't think we'll go much further than much further than we are now.
1: So the Indy Pass is entering its fourth season. This is an interesting product because, you would actually get a payout from Indy Pass for each redemption. Have you considered joining the Indy Pass?
0: I'm sure it's a great program. Um, we haven't seriously considered it. And I think primarily because you know we have the good fortune of such a strong season pass uh, following right here along the Wasatch Front of Utah. And, you know, it's not to say that we wouldn't, but it just hasn't been part of our strategy up to this point.
1: All right, Chad. Well, I really appreciate your time today. I'm really excited about this expansion and and uh and all the things you have ahead. I mean, the, what you laid out today is uh is really a mountain in motion and hoping to get out there and check it out for myself once you once you crack open this new expansion. So thank you very much for your time and I hope the snow just keeps coming and coming till spring. Well, thank you, Stuart. I hope you'll come and ski with me this winter. Will you do that? I would love to, yeah. Count all out. All right. Let's make it Let's happen. Let's do it. Thanks, Chad. <laughs> That's Chad Linebaugh, President and General Manager of Sundance, Utah. Chad, that was awesome. I love the energy and I love your vision for the place. And I will absolutely take you up on that offer to come check the expansion out for myself. It is so much fun to be part of a ski area that is mid-transformation and Sundance is doing everything right right now. So thank you very much for that, Chad. And thank you all for listening. Get ready for a flood of podcasts. I already have episodes recorded with Point Resort's CEO, Stephen Kircher, Leitner Poma of America president, Darren Cole, and Vail Mountain chief operating officer, Beth Howard. Wow, not like me to get behind, so I'm going to have to start cranking these things out. To get those episodes the second they're live, please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the StormSkiing newsletter. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services including apple and spotify there are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else you can also follow the storm on twitter and instagram at storm ski journal until next time stay well stay safe i'm Stuart winchester and i will talk to you again very soon
0: the storm skiing podcast is a quicksilver films production